Welcome to another in the series, Radio Wars. Uh, it's Dave Ryan. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, we're talking to radio veterans with a little peek behind the scenes of some of the things they've encountered in their careers, some funny stuff, some awful stuff, some... Uh, really awful stuff, and uh, we've had a really good time doing this. It's kind of fun for radio people, sure, but there's a lot of people who don't listen to the radio who are like, I never knew that that went on behind the scenes at a radio station. All the just scandals and the stealing and the backstabbing and things gone wrong, and there's some fun stuff, too. It's not all bad. Uh, so this week, we're going to talk to a guy named Bobby Bones. Bobby Bones is a huge syndicated country radio host, and he is the iHeartRadio uh, country host syndicated at Tons of radio stations around the country. Uh, he was also uh, he won on Dancing with the Stars, uh, and um, uh, there was a, he's written a couple of best selling books. I read one, and it's called Bare Bones. That's his first one, and it really is inspiring. And one of the things that Bobby and I talk about is one of the first things we're going to talk about uh, because we both brought it up in our respective books. So let's get started this week on Take a Shower, Show Up on Time, and Don't Steal Anything. really excited about talking to Bobby Bones because I don't think we've really had a real conversation before. Maybe we said hello at a convention sometime or another, but Bobby's one of those guys that no matter what business you're in, you can learn something from. And one of the lessons in my book, it's literally called Take a Shower, Show Up on Time, and Don't Steal Anything. So we kind of enter this conversation in the middle of it, and I was telling Bobby about how I have a 19-year-old son, and I'm trying to impress upon him the importance of being on time and being reliable. Being a reliable worker and having a good attitude. That's it. Because I'm, you know, that's that's basically my only skill is knowing that that's very important. So if other folks are like me, I think that's that's a, a good thing to know. You can actually get ahead by being dependable. It's so true. I said, you know what? You're. I said right now you've got some education and you've got some talent. He's a musician and he wants to be in the music business. I said, but the main thing you have to offer is you got to be reliable and you got to have a good attitude because other than that, you really don't have much to offer. So I think he's starting to learn that a little bit, but you know, still trying to impress that on him. The more talented you are, the flakier you can be. And I see that now on, you know, we'll just say different experiences that I've had with other folks. But as soon as that talent level drops, they'll cut you in a minute. It's almost like working in radio and making a whole bunch of money but not producing, right? Or just producing medium. You know, they're going to cut the big dollar if you're not producing big dollars worth. And the same thing there with, you know, if you have the big talent, you're okay. But as soon as you don't anymore, you know, uh, you're first to go. It's true. Yeah. And, you know, you and I have seen that happen in this business. And you know what? And I think you're right, Bobby. It's like there's a lot of really talented people that are that are kind of flaky and will kind of put up with that because they're super talented. But then when that kind of starts to drop, it's like, uh, yeah, you're you're the first to go. So, yeah, I mean, we have friends in radio. I'll just say this. I have friends in radio that are so good and so compelling, but they are either nightmares to work with. Or just out of their mind sometimes. And I say as my friends, as people that I enjoy having a personal relationship with, but as someone working professionally with them, they are nightmares. And you can only be awful for so long. Not even awful as a person, but awful in uh, your professionalism at work. And as soon as you're not worth it anymore, I've just seen it. Because there have been times in my career where I have been 
probably not performing at the level that I was expected to, but I think because I'm pretty easy to work with that I've been allowed to dig out of a couple holes. You know, I, I think you and I kind of have that in common is we're pretty easy to work with and we're just always working and trying to do a good job. Um, uh, and then we kind of encounter some people who are like, I don't know, they kind of have like, they're a little bit more difficult to work with. So, um, I, you know, I re- reading your book, it's like Bobby and I have a lot in common cause we're, we're both quite introverted. I don't leave the house a lot. Um, uh, I have been fine during the pandemic staying home because I am a homebody. Um, and, uh, I just love working on my radio show. And uh, it was the first time I was ever good at anything. And the first time I was ever admired for anything was when I was, you know, I got into radio and I was taking radio classes when I was in high school and I was the best kid in the class. I mean, there was no question. I was the best kid in the class and I'd never been admired for being a great band member, a great boy scout, a great student. But, um, you know, it was the first thing that I really enjoyed and I still do all these years later. Yeah. Today I was doing an interview with us for some magazine for my, my new show that's coming out in in the spring. And she was like, what do you enjoy most? And I think everyone expects me to say TV, but I love doing my radio show more than I love anything more than I love doing any of the TV stuff or comedy or, or whatever. Just my first love and what has been able to build everything I'm doing comes from radio. So in in the, the same vein, I just, I love, I hate the mornings. Like I, it's only a matter of time and hopefully we'll still be in this shift where it does it. But it shouldn't matter anymore when we're doing our content as long as it, it, is it's, it, it gets on when it needs to get on and it's there for people on demand. I hate morning so much. And you've been doing it longer than I have. I've been doing it since I was 22 or 23, so eight, 17, 18 years at this point. I hate waking up in the morning every day. How are you? Or, or are you a morning person? No, I hate, I hate getting up in the morning, but I love being up in the morning. And I've been doing it since I was 21. And I started at KLUC in Las Vegas. I was 21. I was like you. I had no idea what I was doing, so I did everything, and I did 50% of it wrong and just enough right to give people a glimmer of hope. But I hate getting up. I hate when the alarm goes off. I get up much later than you. I get up at like 4. And I hate to get up, but once I'm up, I love to be up. It's my favorite part of the day. I'm only bummed that I'm inside because, <laughs> you know, I'd love to be outside. But. I hate it all, Dave. I'll be honest with you. I, I well, as soon as we were on vacation, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks, I don't know when this is airing, but it's um, January 6th today. But, you know, so the last couple of weeks we have been, so I've been sleeping in and it takes me about two days to go back to going to bed at three in the morning and waking up at 11 a.m. That's what my natural body does. So I grind it out because I have to, but the, the the morning life is is not one for me. As I say that after being in this for 17 years doing mornings. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, um, Bobby, I got to tell you something. I think that you and I have got a lot in common. We could talk all day about, you know, our, our similar but dissimilar backgrounds. I didn't come from much. And, you know, reading your story, you came from a little town in Arkansas. I, I just want to have, I want to ask you one thing for other radio people or anybody who's listening that whether they're a dentist or, you know, maybe whether they're an artist or they're a banker or anything like that, what is it that makes somebody, and it's not one thing, I get it, and maybe it's just hard work, but what is it that sets you apart from like a million other people in radio? that are pretty talented. I mean, there's a lot of pretty talented guys that are working in Ann Arbor, Michigan that are making, you know, like $62,000 a year. What is it that's, and sometimes it is just talent and you're a really talented guy, but what is it that sets, that makes you, puts you where you are? 
I think it has been my ability to share an extremely relatable story that a lot of folks didn't think was relatable at all. And I, you know, I think a lot of people when they have negative, sad situations, they come from, they feel like they're very alone and just, you know, and I, I when I saw that you were reading my book, I was moved. I mean, I even tweeted it, you know, you're one of the goats of radio. And, you know, when I was writing that thing, I did not expect there to be success. I, you know, I had, I had pitched a book, a kid's book, because I, I did a kid's music record and it did really well. Cracker Barrel bought the record. It was, you know, we, we toured it, you know, a little bit doing kid stuff. And I, I thought I'll write a kid's book and do, you know, some, some characters that, um, that I'd done in a couple songs. And, Nobody wanted it. I went to like, you know, seven, eight different uh, companies, maybe more than that at this point. But, and I said, hey, I got this book. They were like, nah, you're not famous enough. Nobody cares about a kid's book. The market is too saturated. I said, all right. Well, the last place that I went to is HarperCollins, which is, you know, now that I've learned, the time I didn't know, but is the, basically the biggest uh, book publisher. And I told them my kid's book story. And they didn't, you know, they weren't signing up for it. They were smart. And so, but at the end, the, the, lady that was working there said, Hey, would you mind just doing a little uh, monologue on your life story? Cause she had Wikipedia me when my Wikipedia page was bare, but there were a few things up there. And so I said, yeah, here's my story. So I told them my story and they said, okay, well, we think you should write like a, a, a book. And I was like, man, I don't have a, I don't have something I think people will care about. I don't think people relate to my story as far as my background and what I come from. And so they said, okay, we'll, we'll make you a deal. Um, we'll give you, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, whenever you finish the first half of your book, if you want it, then we'll pay you then. And then we'll pay you the second half of it when it's done. If you'd rather. And I was like, good. Cause I don't want to take a bunch of money and put out a bomb. I didn't need to put out a book. I was still really dialed into being the greatest at radio. So I yeah. said, okay, I'll do it. And I wrote this and I wrote that book in essay form. It's a bunch of essays that my extremely talented editor edited together. But as I was writing it, I thought, and this is going to a- answer your question. I thought nobody is going to understand this. And there were things in that book where I wrote about my mom's drug issues. I wrote about embarrassing sexual issues with me. But I just said, I'm not going to put a cap on it. If it comes in my mind, I'm going to write it. And so I wrote it and I thought people are going to read this and they're going to laugh at me. But what happened was when I would tour and I was doing stand-up, I would do meet and greets at theaters before I would go on stage. And so many people came up to me, not to say, hey, that was funny, but say, hey, Either I or someone has experienced a story like that and nobody talks about that. And so that was a reminder to me that regardless of what I'm going through, good or bad, somebody out there is feeling it and there's no need to really be fake about it. And I don't have a great voice. I don't have really any of the real tools that you should have to be a good broadcaster. But the only thing that I've had consistently was authenticity. And it's hurt me at times too, but I feel like it's at least given given me respect um so i would say authenticity and and then just working be it every day my bosses have always known that nobody's gonna work harder than me nobody's gonna show up earlier than me and i think having that confidence that they let me grow into it a bit especially when i was you know 22 years old i think those two things combined have have worked out for me pretty well I agree with you so much about the authenticity and, and, and I think that you and I have, you know, seen radio evolve from like the big voice guys who talk like this and, and, uh, and sound cool. And, you know, and I work with some radio shows and I say, don't sound cool because sounding cool is two 1990s. Nobody wants to hear you sound cool anymore. They want to hear like how you're kind of messed up. 
because that's much more relatable and they're going to be friends with somebody who's, you know, you don't want to be friends with somebody who's cooler than you. You want to be friends with somebody who's like you. And I think that, you know, I don't hear your show often because you and I are on at the same time. And, um, uh, and, and I honestly, I don't make a habit of listening to other radio shows because I don't want to be influenced by other radio shows and start sounding like Bobby Bones or start sounding like Elvis Duran or start sounding like Bert. I, I love Bert. I don't want to sound like him though. So, but, but what I get from you is that, you know, you tell these stories that a lot of people would be like, yikes. I mean, everything from the fact that you were a virgin until you were in your twenties. You know? Yeah, I haven't talked about that in a while. I wasn't. Listen, nobody. I have. I just got engaged about five months or so ago, and I've never been married. I don't have any kids. I've just been really bird dog in my career, a hundred percent. That being said, I think some of that 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 bird dog tendency has been. Then I was a poor geek that was small. Everything about me was the opposite of what girls wanted. So, and again, I think that plays in my favor now because. Being the ugly, dorky, poor kid, I gained all of these life skills. I learned how to be funny. I had to not to get beat up. I learned how to to hold the attention of a room when I needed to. I learned how to shut it down when I don't. And so, you know, <laughs> so yes, I was a virgin until my 20s. Thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because yeah, I wanted you. to bring you a little, a little bit of pain here. So yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, Listen, I live in pain, so uh, it's just another day. <laughs> but you know what? You're You're engaged now. And, uh, and you got a new dog and life is good. Yeah. Life is actually for the first time really good because I'm told it's really good. I love it and I love her, but she has been the first ever balance piece I've had that says, Hey, you got to chill out. I've had some um, health issues with my brain in the past six months or so. And and I went to the doctor and had to do a bunch of neurological stuff. And he's like, Hey man, you got to chill out. Like, do something fun. Like it, you have to go and play golf or play PS five, like just a little bit and stop when you're not doing one thing, doing another. And that's been a bit difficult for me, but she has been there to enforce it. And at times it's uncomfortable and at times we, you know, I don't agree with it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a life now. So I do have the best life now that I've ever had. I want to have kids. I want to have a kid one day like you that I'm like, Hey, Hey idiot, you need to straighten up. Like I look forward to that. And I think now, you know, I can definitely see that in the the upcoming future. So, so you get to a point where you realize you don't want to just build a life, but you want to enjoy that life now instead it's time of just to, work yeah, all the time. It's time to cash in now. Like I've been working and saving, and like her birthday was yesterday. I bought her two. I bought her a, a Gucci purse and a and a what's I don't I don't know these brands. I bought her a Gucci purse and a Chanel purse, and she was like, I never even had one of these purses, but I, I've been working and saving for so long. Finally, I feel like. Let me spend something on somebody. So it's great. I couldn't be happier with what's happening now. And, you know, I still love doing the radio show. I, I mentioned this morning that on my show, as it was ending, my co-host Amy was like, hey, um, what are you doing today? And I told her I was doing some stuff. And I said, and I'm going to talk to to Dave from KDWB, who, you know, I listened to a ton growing up and look up to him now. We're going to talk about war stories. And she goes, are you going to do the, uh, when the IR, when you got hacked by the person at the IRS? And I was like, Oh, I forgot about that one. She was like, what about when you got, <laughs> she was like, what about when you got robbed at gunpoint outside a radio remote? And I was like, you know, I wasn't going to talk about that one either. Or she, and she started going down all of this crap. And I was like, you know what? I haven't thought about those stories. I need to go back in therapy. I'm being re-traumatized right now by all the crap that's <laughs> happened to me. 
Well, you know, my God. Well, let's let's just start right there. And I know you sent me some stories because you know, in doing these these podcasts, I've learned to ask people in advance what the stories are, so I'll know when to stop asking. Because there's nothing more awkward when I'm talking to somebody and saying, "That's a great story. Give me one more," and they go, "I I don't. I that's it. I don't have another one." And I'm like, "Okay, well, that's going to wrap up the podcast." So, <laughs> but let me ask you this one because in the book, probably one of your life's most traumatic experiences was when you you did get help up at gunpoint yeah and that's so, something you probably won't try to think about a whole lot but that's super traumatic there, there's a yes and there's a, a little myriad of of instances that happen around that that um i was in therapy deeply for and and ended up in a pretty dark place but the first thing that happened was i was going to a radio station event at the electric cowboy which obviously is a place where they play country and hip-hop and so obviously, it, yeah. obviously. And so, and I was going, and this was when I was still working in uh, pop and hip hop. And I went over and I was up beside, I went to the ATM right beside the place. And a guy goes, Hey, how much money you got in there? I thought he was kidding. I turned my head and he's got a gun up to my head. And so he, he pistol whips me a little bit. I don't feel it because my adrenaline's pumping. This goes on for a bit. I don't have any money because I am poor. I'm, I remember thinking I had maybe $18 in there total. And so he didn't get any money. He got a purse. So that happens, and it really messed with my head. And later on, probably a year or so later, is when I got my first death threat. And so I'm like, okay, I'd been through about a year of, of therapy because of getting whipped with a gun, getting held at gunpoint. And I had was living in Austin at this point, and I was walking. And I think I mentioned this in the book, too, where I got jumped at work. And, did, and so I was walking up a hill, and a guy goes, hey, Bobby. And I turn around, and he's in a mask. And yeah, he had a knife, right? He was running at me with a knife. And at the time, I just knew he had something in his hand. So I just took off sprinting through the alley. I kicked off my flip-flops, ran, jumped over a brick wall, hurt myself, but a car was coming. He grabbed my laptop, which he had already run past the laptop. So he wasn't trying just to get my bag. He grabbed the laptop and took off. So that happens. And then someone broke into my house while I was on the air. So all this stuff is happening in like a three-year period where I, I don't sleep at night or I wasn't because all I was seeing was guns and people attack me in my sleep. And I was, was like taking Xanax. And I was taking sleeping pills. I was taking any, and I've never tried a drug in my life. I've never had a drink of alcohol, but my, my doctor was like, you're never sleeping. So you have to try something. We tried all this stuff. And it was a really, really, really bad place for me. Probably the worst place I've ever been in in my life. But it was because of all of those weird instances. You know, even when I came to Nashville, I'm, we moved here. And they said, okay. And because of, I'm, we're a bottom line to our company. I get that. I'm a bottom line. You know, I, do I know the people that are running it pretty well at this point? But I also know too that if I were, you know, um, hemorrhaging money, they'd have to make the business decision to cut me. So I'd had so many instances where people had tried to physically harm me where they said, hey, we have to have full time security with you. So I'm like, okay, fine. They said, and you have to live in a certain place for our insurance, it's protected. And so they said, when you move to Nashville, here's this community, go see if you like it. It was called the Governor's Club. I was there for about two weeks and you know, it's got walls around it. It's all you know fancy. And I'm only living there because they said, hey, for our sake, if you could live in a place like this, it will help with our insurance that we have on you. I said, okay, great. And uh, within two weeks, a guy just maybe four or five houses down murders his wife and is running through the streets with uh, like a automatic rifle they can't find them so they have us all locked in our houses and so all those little triggers just kept resetting me kept resetting me we're still today if someone comes up behind me in the dark i'm not gonna act like i would do anything um, 
bad or, or mean, but I, I squill. Like, it's still scary to me. Totally understandable. I mean, if you've been traumatized enough times, you're going to be have your guard up, even if it's subconscious all the time. Wow. The getting well, jump then, thing was really, the getting jump thing was, I mean, the gun at my head was, was tough, but I had no choice. I was confined in a car. When I got jumped and had to make the decision, fight or flight, it was flight immediately. And it was the scariest thing that, that I, in that capacity I've ever done. I can't even imagine. I think all of us listen to this story, Bobby. We hear that and we go, what would I do? Would I be like, what do you want? What do you want? Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. And and you, first of all, you're a hillbilly because you're wearing flip-flops and you kick off flip-flops. <laughs> And and you ran, and then you had to hop over a fence, and then That's the other true. side was lower than you expected. And my God, that had traumatized anybody. You know, years later, that would still kind of wake up at night. Yeah, so. it sucked. But that's a heck of a heck of a list of of stories that when I brought up, she was like, "You talking about this? Talking about that?" I was like, "Well, I think maybe I'll just combine all that into one little segment." <laughs> well, you know what? I appreciate you doing that. And uh, but you, there's there's been some other things, some that I've heard of, some that I haven't heard of. Uh, one was, uh, uh, you want to talk about the uh, the million dollar bad thing, or do you want to talk about the uh, FBI, or do you want to talk about the billboard? Where do you want to start? Um, why don't I do the? I, I, I'll tell. You, this is my first big. Um, scary, I'm going to get fired trouble situation. It was probably 2005 or so. And Lunchbox, my, he's still with me now. I mean, my show has been with me, all of them for 15 years or so. And so I met him at a, um, a bar and we were both, you know, 23, 22 years old. We were trying to make it in Austin. There was another morning show in Austin who was just terrorizing us, like being really mean to us on the air, uh, coming to a, it was just brutal. And I'm really competitive. So I was just like, all right, we got to do the next big thing. So we were doing a lot of really dumb stunts and he goes into a gas station to buy gum and he had a, a pantyhose on his head as he was buying gum. We wanted to see what would happen. Well, we saw what would happen. They arrested him. They, they threw him in jail. They held him in gun. And so we're, we're suspended. Rightfully so. We should have been suspended. And, um, you know, the next day, everybody's on the air in Austin. Ah, oh, that dumb show. They suck anyway. They don't have any ratings. How stupid. And, we were suspended for like two and a half weeks and I was lucky that our general manager, one wasn't paying us a lot. That was a very valuable part of my career was being paid nothing on the early part of it. And right. believed that we could come back from it. And so we did. And he, in two and a half weeks after being suspended, we came back on the air. I apologized. And we went to number one, probably a book and a half later. And for 12 years, never fell out of number one. And it was one of those things where, you know, you, you don't want to cause that kind of trouble for your station. You don't want to be in, have anybody arrested. And you certainly didn't mean to have anything more than a couple of laughs when they went into the grocery store, the convenience store with a uh, pantyhose on their head. But would you say that that turned out to be like a big thing that possibly put you guys on the map, for lack of a better word? Yeah, sadly. I mean, I would never do it again if yeah. I, because it was so dumb. He could have been shot. Yeah. It was so dumb, but, and I'll go back to what we were talking about earlier. I do believe a big factor in me getting to keep my job at that point was that I was easy to work with and I was a team player. And because of that, I think it was an easier decision to keep us when it was probably not the most popular decision. Well, you know what? I can think of a show. I don't want to. I don't want to be too specific, but I know a show in a market that you've worked in before that they were not particularly easy to work with, and the ratings were okay. 
but they weren't great. But when it came around to, you know, like, do we want to spend money on a show that's not so great and they're not so easy to work with? They were gone. But, yeah. I, you know, okay, so you did the pantyhose thing. If people had tuned in to hear about the pantyhose thing and not heard a good show, it wouldn't have worked. But they turned in, they tuned in and they heard a good show. So it worked. Yeah, you know, it's uh, if, if, the hardest thing is to get people to come and taste test, try you out. Like that's the hardest thing because we are so built into our patterns. I am, you are, not even just media and food and where we park if we get the ch- – like everything that we do is a, a, a pattern or a habit. Like we are in these habitual cycles. And so if you can get someone to break it and spend a few minutes with you, that is a win. But the big win is that you got to be good when they get there. So for us to do that, it was dumb. People came and checked us out. And then a lot of them stayed. And I think that, yeah, we were pretty good. I'll just say we were pretty good. We weren't great then, but we were pretty good and we were good enough to keep people and 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 it helped. But that was the first. Ah, oh, that wasn't the first. The first one was in Arkansas. <laughs> oh, let's go back. Uh, I, we're just bringing up all these crazy memories. The first one was in Arkansas, and I'll be brief with this one because there are, are better ones with longer, longer, funnier stories, but – uh, there was a, a radio personality. We were both doing top 40. I was doing nights. He broke in. He uh, stickered our van when we were out. And I thought, all right, F this, man. He's going to sticker our van. I'm going to checkmate him. I took my sidekick at the time named Gilligan, taught him how to run the board because he didn't know how to run the board. I used pictures of inside of their studio as a map and said, this is where you need to go. These are the buttons you need. I put a cowboy hat on him. We drove over to their, to their station he convinced them he worked for the new country station they had just flipped on. And because it was so new that there was no talent. So they believed since he had a cowboy hat and it was at nine o'clock PM that he was supposed to work there. So he goes and he hides in the bathroom. He stands on a toilet. So no one sees his feet and he goes into the studio. Once the night jock left and calls me on their phone, which we had talked about and I'd shown him pictures and he takes the song that was playing. I believe it was a Celine Dion song on a top 40 station. That's how bad the format was hurting at that point. <laughs> turns it down about halfway, turns my phone pot up, walks out of the studio, locks the door so no one can get in. And we drove around for probably, uh, who knows, it felt like an hour. It was probably 15, 20 minutes broadcasting on their station going, don't mess with us. He did grab the, the phone and go say the F word, which I was a little scared about. But that was the first trouble that I really got into. So as I take that back and I start remembering things, but that was a, that was a big deal. And then you know, all these radio, because nobody cared about me. I was just a night guy in Arkansas. And I was listening to people like Adam Smasher, Kane, Tony Fly, you know, he, who was working there at KDWB at the time. And I was just like, man, I'll never be like these guys. But I looked up to them so much. And I would read everything about what they were. Scholar Brad was another one. I'd read about what they were doing in these magazines. That was the first time that a magazine had ever even cared about me. And they were like, Guerrilla Radio is back. And they did the story. And that's when Austin called me and goes, hey, do you want to come do nights in Austin? And I did. <laughs> and that got their attention. There was like, oh, my God, there's this guy in Arkansas who's doing some crazy stuff. And by the way, that's brilliant. I've never heard of anything like that in the whole time I've been in radio. Brilliant. Brilliant um, or almost really dumb. Again, I wouldn't do it again. I have so many instances of what the F was I thinking when I was doing this stuff. But I'm here, right? I'm here and I'm stronger and smarter for it. It's an awesome story. Um, tell me about the billboards. When you came, here's one thing that you and I have mentioned, you know, and I think we have a lot in common in our experiences. I've replaced legends and there's nothing worse than replacing a legend because everybody instantly hates you. And you ran into that when you came to Nashville to do the iHeartRadio Country um, morning show. 
Yeah. So there was a, a guy named Jerry House, and he was a, a local Nashville uh, morning personality, but he was beloved. And he was older. His style was a lot different than mine, but the style was different then. And he had been around for probably 30 years. And so when he finally left, they hired another show to be the local show. And that show, you know, fizzled out in like six months or so. So people didn't even know that show existed. Well, when I was trying to decide what I was going to do, if I was going to move to New York or, or wherever, and I was able to convince them once they said, Hey, Nashville's an option. And I was like, we need to make this a national show. And we, we, so I went in and everybody hated my guts because I wasn't Jerry house. Now I wasn't trying to be Jerry house and I respect everything he did, but everything about us was different. I wasn't wearing cowboy boots or belt. I mean, I grew up in Arkansas in a small rural town, but I also grew up with Napster and I grew up with, you know, the uh, iTunes, you know, and, and when music started to be coming from all directions and you could just push a button and get any kind of music you wanted, and you could sample any kind of music that changed all of our lives. And I grew up in that generation that that's how I consumed things. So I was a bit different than the past couple of generations. I was, sure, hated, yeah. everywhere. I was hated everywhere. I mean, it, it didn't matter when I went on in my home state and it, it was two things. One, I was the guy that was replacing a lot of famous people in a bunch of markets and that was uncomfortable. I had my show for about a year, just stay off of Facebook. Now I have them doing that for a different reason, but because it's just so mean in general. But we just right. stayed off, and it's tough to replace a legend. Um, in the end, it it worked out for me, but the first couple of years were, were pretty brutal. Do you want to talk about the billboard? Because in, in that period, when everybody's like, you got to go, and you suck, and you're no Jerry House, and whatever, and the old school Nashville you know, country music crowd was not into you, you kind of decided to turn the guns on yourself, for so to speak, with the billboard. Well, the one thing that I, I do consistently, and hopefully I, I continue to do this for the rest of my life, is um, I can laugh at myself. I'm a pretty good self-critic. I know when things aren't going well, when I'm doing something really dumb and wrong. But I was like, man, what can I do to make people either pay attention to me or feel sorry for me that hate me? I don't want people to feel sorry for me that already liked the show because they were already in and they kind of understood the vibe. But I was like, the people that hate me, like the only way to make you like a villain in a superhero movie is to hear something, somebody else hates them that you hate, you know, or, or, or there's another angle. And so I thought, what can I do? And I had seen this documentary on Brian Bosworth and he had when he was playing football for Seattle and people hated him and he was a linebacker from Oklahoma. He was um, just brash and he had a Mohawk and what he would do because yep. people hated him so much is he would make t-shirts that said uh, Bosworth sucks and he would have somebody sell them at the away games. And I thought freaking brilliant. And so hmm. just using that, that mindset, I thought, what can I do not to make money? Cause he was doing it to make money. I was like, what can I do that kind of turns it back on me? I said, okay, what if I buy a billboard? And I looked up the price and pretty expensive. But the guy was like, Hey, if you do two or three, you know, you can, uh, you know, really get a bang for your buck. So I bought three billboards. <laughs> right. I learned on the internet how to create a, like a, a shell company basically that you couldn't trace who the person was, uh, signed, got it, the NDA to the billboard guy, learned how to do that too. Cause at that time I didn't have any resources. I moved to Nashville and they were paying me. They had just started paying me pretty well. So, but I didn't have the education on all of that. And had him agree to not say anything because the only two people knew. 
me, him, and my buddy who was sometimes running as a middleman. And okay. so we put up billboards that said, go away, Bobby Bones. And the news was covering them. People were taking pictures of them. We started covering them. You know, my feelings were hurt and they couldn't figure out who it was. Record label people, artists that maybe didn't like me, other radio stations. But it really became this thing like, who hates you so much? The girl I was dating at the time was like, who hates you so much? They'd spend money on that. No one ever knew. And so I wrote it in my first book. That's how I revealed it was that it was me. So I was going to ask you how you revealed it in your first book. That was, was that the first time you ever revealed? So you never said on the radio, ha, 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 that was me. Never. The first time I revealed it was in, a, in my book, and I sent a pre-screener to a writer at the Washington Post that I really enjoy her work, and she was doing a story on it. And that's the story she took from the book and made a story out of. And so that's how it came out. And then once it came out, I said I admitted to it on the air. And it had been three or four years since. But it worked. I mean, still, when we do these projects – where you go and, you know, they're called perceptuals and radio and they say, okay, what do you, it's not, you know, what minutes are you listening? But it's like, what do you know about this show? What words come to mind? So many people, even a year or two ago, still bring up how people hated me on a billboard for no reason without ever knowing that it was really me still. They still don't know. Some people still don't know. Some do, but some people still don't. Unbelievable. Okay. So uh, one of the things that I looked up in your book, it's interesting. You call it the million dollar bad thing. Um, and I looked it up and of course it, you said, Oh, it wasn't my fault. It really wasn't my fault. And I'm like going, sure, Bobby, it wasn't your fault. And I looked it up and it really wasn't your fault, but well, you got investigated by the feds and fined, and it was horrible for a while. It's horrible. Now, did I, did I write that in bare bones or did that happened in my second book? I wonder, I don't even know. It was in bare bones. Was it? Okay. So yeah. what happened was, first of all, I was, I'm one of like five people on the radio to ever be fined a million dollars. Like seven figures got the fine. Um, but I didn't do anything. I didn't play the piano with my penis. You know, it, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't anything obscene or vulgar, but we were, I was in Dallas and I was, I was touring doing comedy and I was working out of the Dallas studios that morning. And the night before there was a world series baseball game. And in like the eighth inning, one of the biggest home runs of the game, there was a pitch, a hit. And right before the ball's about to go out, this is a warning of the EAS system. They hit him with a warning in the middle of the World Series. And so I'm going, what an inopportune time. Could they not schedule <laughs> that at 10? Could they look and see? So I went to, you know, what we have are these sound effect libraries in radio. You know, you can just log on. And so I went and I grabbed the sound effect for EAS tone. By the way, what I'm telling you now is the first time I've ever spoken about this at this length. Because now I kind of wow. feel like, all right, I'm kind of I can talk about it a little more without going to to you know the big house. So I appreciate that. It's been a while since it happened. Yeah, I, I grabbed a sound effect from the little uh, the radio page, and I was like, you know how? And I was doing this dumb throwaway bit, probably two minutes long, where I was reenacting really famous parts of American history, and it was getting hit right at the big moment with an EAS alert. Mildly funny, but didn't base even a whole segment around it, but I was just kind of doing a parody of what happened that night. What I didn't know bit. was, well, it's fair. What I didn't know was that was an EAS tone from like three years ago that the literally the white house was using if there was a, a disaster of some sort. And so there had been a new one that had been established, but what I didn't know was they didn't correct a lot of their machines. So I played this tone and what happens with those tones is something else hears it and it starts triggering radio stations everywhere. So, in all these cities, entire markets are locked up with EAS tone lockup because I pushed that button 
and <laughs> the systems weren't. So all these systems, and I get a call going, hey, um, everything's locking up with EAS. I don't know what to do. And I was like, I'll just keep doing the show. Then I got a call going, hey, we got to pull you and we got to pull the satellite feed because apparently that EAS. So in like an hour, it had snowballed so big to where I believe it was like ATTU-verse. It triggered their channel because on some of the cable, the, the, like the platforms, there'll be, if there's an emergency, an alert pops up on TV. Well, the worst part about it is since I only played the segment or the, the sound effect for a few seconds, I didn't play the end of it. And those tones have an unlock. They have a lock and an unlock, meaning when it locks, it takes over. At the end, when it's in, that's an unlock tone that means go back to your schedule programming. I never hit the okay. unlock because I didn't know it was locked. So everything just sure. stayed locked up for hours. So it's it. so at this point, you don't really realize you're in big trouble. When did you start to realize you're in big trouble? When I got a call from Washington, D.C. on my phone, I was like, well, let me answer this. And it was somebody from, well, just say the government. And <laughs> from, from this point, I'll choose my words wisely, but I was – I had some really hard questions asked to me. I was on the record for some stuff. It was completely inadvertent. You know, I, I definitely had no intention at all of that happening. And they were going to fine us, from what I heard, $6 million. That was the fine. However, thank God there was a small station in California, Northern California, that put a tone inside of one of their weather promos. And the SEC fined them like, $8,000 or whatever the number okay. was. That number I'm making up. But it was a small okay. amount. A lot less. What our attorneys did is they said, okay, well, let's prorate this. Since you've, you've made, you've set the precedent there. So you did that. So our precedent should be $1 million. They agreed to it. The end. I got fined a million bucks. And nobody wants to get fined a million dollars. And let's face it, it's, you know, it's not your money, but it's your conscience and it's your professionalism and it's your everything that makes you go, oh my God. And you lost a lot of sleep over that too. Hated it. I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I had let down because at that point I was on my first like big contract and I was embarrassed yeah. for, for Bob Pittman who had just signed me to this deal. And uh, you know, I was really going to try to make him, him proud and rich Bressler, who's our, our CFO. And I was just embarrassed that, that I had let people down. Um, but again, it goes back to, that was really stupid. They could have easily fired me. I cost him a lot of money, but in the end, the show was starting to do well. We were making money and I'm pretty easy to work with. And I think that, that's, that says so much. And also, you know, what I think that, you know, I think one of the great lessons of people that are successful is they do make mistakes and because they're trying a lot of different things. And if you're not making a lot of mistakes or at least a few mistakes, then you probably need to try to do, you know, we never want to make a million dollar mistake, but you know, you've, you've made mistakes because you're trying new things. Yeah. And my, you know, I, I didn't want to write a second book and, you know, they were kind of beating me up over it. And so I said, okay, all right, let me, let me think about what I want to write about. And I did a Ted talk um, called winning by losing and I did it and it was, it was pretty good. It wasn't real good, but it was pretty good. And, but I was kind of inspired by that topic. And so I wrote fail until you don't. And um, luckily it, it, it did well. And so, but that's what that whole book is about is like, you can only learn by doing and, when you're doing, especially if you're doing it early, you're not going to do it well because you just started. So if you don't hop in and start failing, then you're not going to get better. And if you're comfortable, you're not growing because there is no growth sitting in a recliner watching your favorite show. 
Uh, so, yeah. you know, I, I listen, I've dicked around and messed up a lot, but again, I have, I feel like I'm a hundred years old in the radio world at this point. You've seen and done a lot, Bobby Bones, and uh, it's been it's been interesting to watch you. I want to mention just really quick: uh, you are um, a champion on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> what was the? I, I mean, obviously the dances. What did you take away from being on Dancing with the Stars? Because not only are you doing the radio show and you're doing the Country Countdown and you're doing this and you're doing TV and you're doing everything else, how did you manage to be on Dancing with the Stars and manage everything else? Uh, Almost died. Almost didn't. It was really hard to do the radio show, and because I had never danced before in my life, what the, the real story on that show is, I didn't really want to be on it at first because I thought, who the crap goes on Dancing with the Stars? And I called Charlemagne, who's one of my dearest media radio friends, um, and so I said, hey, Charlemagne works in New York. If if you listen to this, I'm sure you know who he is. But he's he's literally one of like my best friends, and I said, hey, they want me to do Dancing with the Stars. And they wanted me to do it because I was on American Idol. I had finished my first season going to my second. They were going to use that as a promo into the second season of Idol. And I was like, I don't want to be because it's only losers on that show. That's what I thought. And he goes, not really. He goes, sometimes people use that on the, on the way up too. And he started listing off people who had done the show. Kardashian, Michael Strahan, Wendy Williams. And he went through this list and I was like, I did not look at that the right way. And he goes, man, <laughs> I couldn't tell you a hundred times. I tell you a hundred times and it wouldn't be enough. You need to do that show. So I did, and the whole purpose was, again, to promote American Idol. And they told me before I started, hey, you've never danced before. No one's ever won this show that hasn't danced. You'll last four weeks, and you'll go right to American Idol. You'll make your money, and, and there you go. And I was like, great. But I'm so competitive that we would train 10, 11 hours, and then we would continue training off camera when we weren't supposed to illegally in other places. And so <laughs> I wasn't good, but I learned that you don't have to be the best you just have to make people want to root for you and root with you. And not just on that show, but in anything you're doing. You don't have to be the best, but as long as people like are inspired by you, root for you, run alongside you, and they they it's it's an inclusive environment, like you have that's where the power lies. And so as soon as I kind of realized that on the show, I worked extremely hard, but I started to approach it where, listen, I'm doing this in a, in a different way. I'm not I'm never going to get eights and nines on this show, but what I can do is be extremely relatable and make sure people know. And I did, and I won the freaking show, and it was—I couldn't believe it. And so it was an awesome experience. After it was that over, is amazing. Is it was the greatest thing I've ever done, but it was also the hardest thing I've ever done. I I totally believe that because when I saw you're going to be on there, it's like, oh, that's kind of funny. And I would have said the same thing. Oh, Bobby, you'll probably last two or three weeks. But the fact that you won the whole thing is, I mean, just incredible. Um, I'll give you one more uh, opportunity, Bobby. I know you got a big show coming up on the National Geographic Network channel uh, coming up. Do you want to mention that real quick? Yeah, sure. I It's called Breaking Bobby Bones, and it'll be on Disney Plus and Nat Geo. Nat Geo will run live, and then as soon as it's over, it goes right on Disney Plus. Okay, so gotcha. That's pretty exciting for me. It's a, you know, I created the show um, probably a year or so ago. It, there's a show called Running Wild with Bear Grylls. And they had asked me to come be a guest on that show. And I went to Norway and was a guest on this show. And, you know, again, I was the least famous person on that show by far. And, uh, but I was pretty good on it. You know, I was a human being. Like a lot of quote unquote celebrities, they kind of have an image to protect. And I felt like I was pretty real. I thought I did pretty good. And so I'd finished taping it. 
And I started developing this show and I was working with some of the guys at Nat Geo that I had met through being cast on Bear Girls. And that show ends up being the highest rated one of the season. And I'm like, look, guys, radio has real power. You may hear things, you know, hipper, cooler, but great. Good luck with good luck with actually moving people with that. And yeah. we were the highest rated show of the season. And so all that creating we were doing, that the president Nat Geo, uh, he's a big fan of the radio show. And she was like, let's go. Let's make this a show. So we made it a show. Um, you know, I combined not only what I do on the radio show with um, some of my favorite shows. Like I wanted to bring in elements of uh, – I love Anthony Bourdain, how he travels around and tells stories through food. And so this is a very storytelling show. It is a travel show, but I'm all over America telling stories with folks who have j- stories like mine that come from a place where you don't expect them to do well, but they persevere. So I wanted that inspirational element. I think Jackass is so funny. as still – and I'm an adult man – so there's <laughs> I agree. I'm trying to do like some of this stuff I'm competing in um, the Bourdain, the dirty job. There's a, there's a part of that too, that's in there. And then at the end, I wanted to really have a piece where there was a give back kind of that, you know, move that bus moment that's on um, extreme home makeover. So, you know, I basically ripped off like six shows, including my own and made this sandwich of a show. And I'm now starting to get episodes in and I was worried it wasn't going to be that good because I'm the one they're shooting and I get, I'm over me. I've had it so much me. That I'm, I'm over it, but it's really good. And so, you know, I'm, I'm excited for it to come out. It should come out in late March, early April, and we'll see what happens. It could be a one and done, you know, move on with our life, but there really could be something special here. You know, I mean, for, Bobby, for such a for a very successful guy, you're very modest. I think that's one of the things that people like about you, that you're still like Bobby Bones from uh, Arkansas. And I think that's really cool. And and you've given me way more time. I expected, honestly, I thought that you'd be on for about 20 minutes and be like, Dave, I got to go, man. I got a meeting. I got to be somewhere. And well, you've been really cool with your time. I appreciate that. Full transparency. I was very much looking forward to this. I just left the Grand Ole Opry. I, I produce and host a, a show over at the Grand Ole Opry. And I'd set out an hour because this was something I was really looking forward to doing. And I also know that a lot of radio folks will listen to this. And what I want them to know, it doesn't matter who you are, what, what I'm from. I worked in Hot Springs, Arkansas. It was not a market at the time. It, it's like 220 now or something like that. I didn't know anybody in radio. I moved to Little Rock. I didn't know anybody. Nobody gave a crap. But I've been able to take a radio career. And if, this, if it's what you want to do, take a radio career and create a TV career, have a music uh, comedy career, do stand up and th- all from radio. Not because I, I'm some great talent that burnt through comedy clubs or you know, grew up in L.A. and had family and television. All through radio and taking one ladder rung and grabbing the next ladder rung. Not jumping three ahead, but taking one and, just, and, and going to the next. And finding people that I empowered when they believed in me. All from radio. And so when people – and I see the hate sometimes for me online. And I'm like, I don't even know you. I don't – I do nothing – but I understand how when you're in a place and you see other people doing well, sometimes it, you look back at yourself and go, what am I not doing? That happens to me too. And, and I'm friends with Ryan now, but I used to be that way with him, with Ryan Seacrest. And I used to be like, what am I? But now that I've been in it a bit, you know, I just want to empower other radio folks because this is the hardest job and it's going to be the hardest job to keep. But if you're good at it and if you're compelling and if you're creating content that's bringing eyeballs to not just the in ears to just the live radio, but you need to have them setting appointments to come to your podcast. You need to have uh, things popping on YouTube. You just need to be a personality 
more so for the first time ever. And if you can do that, the whole world is at your fingertips. It is completely bendable all from radio. So I believe it. I have lived it. I'm still living it. I try to help out other radio guys as much as I can because I love it so much and I love the show. And let me say, I love you. So there it is. Bobby, that, that is so great. That's so powerful. And you know what? I um, uh, Casey Kasem was a guy that um, we all, you know, if we're in radio, you all know him. He's been gone for a while, but we had him on the show one time and super successful. And he said, you know what? Yeah, radio can start so much and don't park yourself in one place. Like you said, get in your recliner and sit and watch TV because um, you're not growing at that point. So, you know, we learn a lot from guys like you and guys that, uh, that have done well. So Bobby, listen, uh, so if you booked an hour for this interview, you've now got like 13 minutes to do nothing, but sit around and play with your new dog. I'll probably hop on the treadmill a little earlier. I got, uh, we're, we're doing, uh, you know, we're still taping this TV show and, we got another episode that we haven't announced yet of bear that we're going to do. Um, and so we got to, I got to kind of be in shape for that. So I'm going to go work out, have a little dinner, start working on tomorrow's show and love every minute of it. Bobby, it's been so much fun. I appreciate the time so much and hopefully we can do this again. We, I don't think we've ever met. We might've met at a morning show boot camp briefly, well, but I don't know. That funny that you mention it, Dave. I was just one of those idiot morning show guys that came up to you and worshiped the ground that you walked on. Yes. At a couple of morning show boot camps, there was no reason to, I wasn't again, there were a hundred people coming up to you. I was one of them. And if it happened again today, I'd still be one of them. So they were brief, but maybe some point in the near future, they won't be as brief. I hope so. You know what? It's funny because I've also been you at morning show boot camp. I've gone up to people that you and I both respect and admire, and I've walked up and I'm like, huh, I, I just I've, I've listened to you for a long time, and they're like, Yeah, kid, go away. It's like, what do you say though, right? It's like you say, Hey, I admire you. That's what I would say to you. I'm a big fan, big fan, but I, I'm nervous. What am I going to say to somebody that, that there's a hundred people coming up to you? I'm just a little dope. I, and I'm just like, oh, hey, man, uh, I really like you. And then I, I just walk. You were like a hot girl to me. Like, you don't want anything to do with me. <laughs> they don't want anything to do with me at that time. So it was like, and there were, you know, 10,000 other guys going at the girl. And there were 10,000 guys trying to talk to you. So I was like, eh, you're pretty. And then I walked away. <laughs> I, you know what? Now that you say it, I do remember you telling me that I was pretty. I yeah, get thank it. You, thank uh, you. Bobby, it was so fun talking to you. Uh, continued success. And uh Thanks for being on. Check out Bobby's books, uh, bestsellers. Uh, even if you're not in radio, check them out. You can learn a lot just about you know success and what it takes to be you know make yourself stand out and some life lessons. So, Bobby Bones. Uh, Thank you, Dave. Talk to you thanks soon, bud. You know, I'll apologize for the quality of the audio at this point, but uh, you know my feeling on this is uh, if it's good stuff the audio quality. We'll just have to take a back seat. Hey, thanks again to Bobby Bones. Uh, check out his uh, two books, two New York Times bestsellers. I read the first one called Bare Bones, and it's so good. If you're in radio haven't read it yet, then check that out. Uh, and uh, check out my book, too, if you are uh, new to this podcast and you've never heard of it before. Uh, it's sold out, so, I mean, that's a good thing. And it's doing really well on Kindle. Uh, take a shower, show up on time, and don't steal anything. If you're a regular listener, God love you for coming back week after week or every other week or however often you listen and checking out the podcast. Hey, feedback, emails, always welcome. My email is Ryan at kdwb.com. And thanks for checking out Radio War Stories on the podcast, take a shower, show up on time, and don't steal anything. Thanks for listening.